Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I thank you so much for bringing us together, and I ask that you would speak to us with great clarity today. I pray, as always, that I would not get in the way of what you plan to do, that I would become less and you would become more as you speak to us in truth. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad that you could join us again as we look at the different questions that come up from time to time about the Christian faith. In this lesson, we're going to be looking at some questions that explore the nature of this God we're talking about and how we relate to him. For instance, did Jesus actually claim to be God? Did people in the New Testament simply honor him or did they actually worship him? And if Jesus is God and there is God the Father, then what about the Holy Spirit? Are we talking about one God or three? So let's begin by looking at whether or not Jesus ever claimed to be God. I have to tell you that Jesus never did use those exact words, I am God. However, if you look at the reactions of the Jewish religious leaders of the time to what he did say, it's very evident that the expressions and the self-descriptions he used clearly indicated that he was indeed claiming to be God. Perhaps we don't see that as easily as they did because we're less familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. But the Jewish leaders didn't miss the point. They were not only familiar with the Old Testament, they knew much of it by heart. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying because in the end, they put him to death for blasphemy, which is, of course, the act of insulting or dishonoring God by what you've said. In the book of Leviticus 24 verses 15 to 16, the penalty for blasphemy was clear. Anyone who curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. I'd like us to look in the word at what some of the Old Testament scriptures reveal about God and then compare those scriptures to what Jesus said about himself as recorded in the New Testament. So let's begin with what God says in Isaiah 42 verse 8. He declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God was very direct here in Isaiah. He would not give his glory to another. He is the only one to be worshipped and honoured as God. But in John chapter 17 verse 5, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So in one short sentence, Jesus not only claimed to share the divine glory, he claimed to have predated creation. These statements must have been truly alarming to those who heard him. Jesus made another claim we need to look at 
We see it in Mark chapter 2. A very large crowd had gathered around Jesus. No one could easily get to him. And so four friends ended up bringing a paralyzed man to Jesus by lowering him through the roof of the building that Christ was in. Mark chapter 2 verses 5 to 12 tell us, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The teachers of the law clearly recognized that it is only God who can forgive sins. So Jesus challenged them with a question. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. I'm sure that they were thinking to themselves, well, it's easier to say his sins are forgiven because you can say anything without it really being true. But if you know the story, Jesus went on to heal the man and he told him to get up, take his mat and walk. Jesus did what they thought was the most difficult thing. He healed the man in order to prove that he also has the power to forgive. Do you see that those present understood what he was doing? By claiming that he had the authority to forgive whatever a person had done, he was in fact claiming to be God incarnate or God in the flesh. There's another claim to consider though. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 6, we're told the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. God himself is revealed to be the only one who is able to raise the dead to life. But look at what Jesus says to the religious leaders in John chapter 5 verses 25 to 29. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Speaking of himself as the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, Jesus reveals that he also has the authority to raise the dead to life, for it is at the sound of his voice that the dead will rise, and then will come the judgment. Some rise to everlasting life and others to be condemned. But did you see that Christ is also described here as the judge? The teachers of the law knew that God alone is judge. They knew Psalm 9 by heart, where David says in verse 7 to 8, The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. 
There are many other chapters of Scripture in the Old Testament that declare God to be the only judge. But in John 5, that passage we just read, and also in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34, Jesus claims that he is the final judge, again referring to himself using the messianic title, the Son of Man, Jesus said in Matthew 25:31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, and so on. If he was only a teacher, a prophet, or a good man, this would indeed be blasphemy. But Jesus could say these things about himself because he is God. He is the resurrection and the life. He is judge. He was neither a liar nor a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said, but indeed he was Lord of all. I want to pick up on the image of the shepherd that we saw in that passage in Matthew 25 also. There were several times that Jesus referred to himself as the shepherd of the sheep, perhaps most notably in John chapter 10. In John 10 verse 11, Christ declares, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And a few verses later in verse 14, he affirms, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. God as shepherd is a very familiar image in the Old Testament. Surely the most famous of Psalms is Psalm 23, in which David reveals the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. God himself is the shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. He cares for us as his very own. Through his prophets, God also presented himself as the shepherd who searches out the lost sheep. In Jeremiah 23, God rebuked the religious leaders he had placed in charge of his flock. And then he begins to speak as their shepherd He promises in verse 3, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. And again in Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 11 through 12, God says something similar. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Jesus used this very familiar Old Testament image of a shepherd to explain his ministry to those religious leaders who obviously didn't understand what he was doing. Luke 15 verse 1 records the story. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, 
This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. When the religious leaders criticized Jesus for eating with sinners, Jesus told them about the shepherd who went out in search of the lost sheep, only to celebrate over a meal when that lost sheep was found. Of course, he's talking about himself. He is the shepherd in search of the sheep, continuing the work of God the shepherd in the Old Testament. So how did the Pharisees and the teachers of the law react to Christ's statements? There are many different instances in Scripture, but for the sake of time, let's just look at one event. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 33, as Jesus talks more about being the shepherd of the sheep, he says to the leaders present, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Do you see how obvious it is? They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. Immediately they picked up stones to stone him, which you'll remember was the appropriate punishment for blasphemy. It should be pretty clear to us that Jesus was claiming to be God, but that raises the second question. Did people in the New Testament simply honor him, or are we ever told that they worshipped him? Well, Matthew 2 verse 11 declares that the Magi worshipped Jesus after his birth. In Matthew 14, verse 33, we learn that after Jesus walked on the water to get to the disciples' boat, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. In John 9, Jesus gave sight to a man who had been born blind. That was something that had never happened before in the history of mankind. Yes, people's sight had been restored before, but Jesus didn't restore the man's sight. Jesus gave the man sight that he'd never had before, which was something only God could do. This was not a healing. This was a miracle of creation. The religious leaders were so angry at the man's testimony of the miracle Christ had done that they excommunicated him. John 9 verse 35 to 38 states, 
Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? the man asked. Tell me, sir, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And more to the point, Jesus accepted his worship. In Matthew 28, when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples, they worshipped him. And of course, you'll remember Thomas, after he'd struggled so much to believe in the news of Christ's resurrection, Jesus appeared to him in John 20, verse 27 to 28. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Again, Jesus accepted the worship and did nothing to prevent it. The only reason he would have not corrected what Thomas had said was if it were true. Another mention is found in Luke 24, verses 51 to 52. At Jesus' ascension into heaven, after he rose from the dead, it says while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. In their writings to the different churches of the New Testament, the apostles answered both of these first two questions. Is Christ God and are we to worship him? Paul, in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is actually the creator and sustainer of all things. Paul again emphasized the deity of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, saying in verse 6 of Jesus that he, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He goes on to speak of Christ taking on human flesh in order to pay our debt on the cross to bring us to the Father, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess and give Christ the worship that truly belongs to him. We've already seen that Jesus claimed to be one with God the Father and that he received and will receive the worship due to God alone. But there is a third person we also refer to as God, and that is the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean, that there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit? Well, we first need to make it clear that as Christians, we do not worship three gods, for that would be tritheism. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 very clearly states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And according to texts such as Isaiah 45 verse 5, Scripture clearly reveals that there is only one God. I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Yet, from the beginning in Genesis 1, we see God say, Let us make man in our image. 
in our likeness. He uses plural pronouns to express his thoughts and his actions. Surely this indicates that the three members of what we call the Trinity have always existed in a relationship of communion and love with each other. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It's a theological term used to define God as an undivided unity expressed in the threefold nature of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God has three different ways of being in the redemptive event, yet he remains an undivided unity. In other words, although each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a different function in the story of man's redemption, the person of the Trinity, sorry, the persons of the Trinity are equal and exist together as one forever. We'll come back to this, but first let's look in the Word to see what we can learn about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and how this all fits together. In John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18, on his last night with his disciples, Jesus introduced them to the Holy Spirit and his role in the life of a believer. He said, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he, that is the Father, will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In this text, Jesus very clearly refers to the Holy Spirit as a person and as someone who is distinct from both the Father and from himself. The Holy Spirit is never referred to in Scripture as a depersonalized force. The Holy Spirit is not merely the power of God, as some people would have you believe, and he is never referred to as it. To further help you grasp this truth that the Holy Spirit is a person, let's look at Acts chapter 5. There a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, wanting the praise of men, lied about the money that they'd donated to the church. They made out that they'd given all of their funds when, in fact, they'd held some back. Now, if you read that section in Acts, understand that the issue was not that this couple did not give everything to the church. The real issue was that they lied about what they had given. And there, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter states, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, one cannot lie to a table or a chair, an inanimate object. You can't lie to the wind, a depersonalized force. You can only lie to a person. And as it turns out, that person also happens to be God himself. For Peter goes on to conclude saying to Ananias in Acts chapter 5 verse 4, You have not lied to men, but to God. 
Whatever else the story about Ananias and Sapphira teaches us, it certainly shows that the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. As the Son is God, so too the Holy Spirit is God. Let's look again at those verses we read from John chapter 14, verse 17. There we see that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our counsellor or helper, and Jesus also calls him the Spirit of Truth. You might remember in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus told us that he is the truth. He is wanting them to see that he and the Holy Spirit are one. Jesus also wanted them to see that they would have a very personal, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. For not only will the Holy Spirit be with us as Christ followers, we will be indwelt by him. So in verse 17, Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, lives with you and will be in you. But look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19 to the disciples. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I am in you. Just moments before, Jesus had said that the Holy Spirit would be the one to indwell us. And now Jesus says that he will be in us. And that is an indication of the fact that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are one, just as God the Father and God the Son are one. Whether it's easy to fully understand or not, we often see the different persons of the Trinity working together in the Scriptures. In Matthew chapter 3, for example, when Christ was baptized, as Jesus came out of the water, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and alighted on Christ. And a voice from heaven cried out, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. God the Father speaks from heaven, God the Son is baptized, and God the Holy Spirit descends in the likeness of a dove. All three persons of the Godhead present and working at one time, in one place, with one purpose. The triune nature of God, or Trinity, is clearly indicated in Scripture and in the words of Jesus himself. For all of that, though, I must confess that it remains a mystery, something that no one can adequately explain. But I think sometimes God reveals himself to us in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. And that's just as well, because I sense that if we could figure everything out perfectly, if we could fit it all in a box tied up with a bow, we would end up with a God of our own making, rather than the God who is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that though we don't understand everything about who you are, that is because our minds are just too small to grasp everything in its enormity. Lord, we just praise and thank you that Jesus made it plain that he is God. Lord, we thank you too that the Holy Spirit is revealed 
to be a person and to be God himself. Lord, though we don't fully understand this concept of the Trinity, we trust you to be all that you are, to make us all that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.